Welcome back, Hemming Brains, to the Hemming Brains podcast, book four, chapter four. Wow, that man just died walking. Swim said the mama fishy says, I worked with a guy who was opening a door to go inside a building, and he dropped dead of a massive heart attack. He was with a bunch of colleagues at the time, 52 and healthy. Regarding the book, I immediately wondered if this meant Junior was going to get his hands on some money. I think I got a bit lost recently in these chapters with all of the characters, you know. That's just my crappy attention span recently, probably, to, to blame for that. But I wonder if anyone else is in the same boat. Not even really sure who this old man was. Not sure how Junior would be inheriting the money. Take your word for it, though. Anyway, that was the only comment we had on that chapter, so let's just keep reading. Chapter 5. A year and two months later, on a misty snowy morning in January 1850, her and Madame Grundlich sat at breakfast with their little three-year-old daughter in the brown wainscoted dining room on the chairs that cost 25 marks apiece. The panes of both windows were opaque with mist. Behind them one had vague glimpses of bare trees and bushes, A red glow and a gentle scented warmth came from the low green tiled stove standing in the corner. Through the open door next it one could see the foliage plants in the pensee room. On the other wall half-drawn green stuff porteries gave a view of the brown satin salon and of a lofty glass door leading on to a little terrace beyond. The cracks in this door were carefully stopped with cotton wool and there was nothing to be seen through its panes but the whitish grey mist beyond. The snow-white cloth of woven damask on the round table had an embroidered green runner across it laid with gold-bordered porcelain so translucent that it gleamed like mother of pearl. The tea kettle was humming. There was a finely worked silver bread basket in the shape of a curling leaf with slices and rolls of fine bread under one crystal bell where little balls of butter under another different sorts of cheese, white, yellow and green. There was even a bottle of wine standing before the master of the house for her Grunlich had a full breakfast every morning. His whiskers were freshly curled and at this early hour his rosy face was rosier than ever. He sat with his back to the salon, already arrayed in a black coat and light trousers, with a pattern of large checks, eating a grilled chop in the English manner, his wife thought his very elegant. His wife thought this very elegant, but also very disgusting. She had never brought herself to take it instead of her usual breakfast of bread and butter and an egg. Tony was in her dressing gown. She adored dressing gowns. Nothing seemed more elegant to her than a handsome negligee and as she had not been allowed to indulge this passion in the parental house, she was the more given to it as a wife. She had three of these dainty, clinging garments to the fashion, fashioning of which can go so much more taste and fantasy than to a ball gown. Today she wore her dark red one, its colour toned beautifully with the paper above the wainscoting and its large flowered stuff of a beautiful soft texture was embroidered all over with sprays of tiny glass beads of the same colour, while row after row of red velvet ribbons ran from neck to hem. Her thick ash-blonde hair, with its dark red velvet band, 
curled about her brows, she had now, as she was herself well aware, reached the highest point of her physical bloom, yet her pretty pouting upper lip retained just the naive, provocative expression of her childhood. The lids of her grey-blue eyes were reddened with cold water, her hands, the white buttonbrook hands finely shaped, if a little stumpy. Their delicate wrists, caressed by the velvet cuffs of her dressing gown, handled her knife and fork and teacup with motions that were today, for some reason or other, rather jerky and abrupt. Her little daughter, Erica, sat near her in a high chair. She was a plump child with short blonde hair in a funny, shapeless, knitted frock of pale blue wool. She held a large cup in both tiny hands, entirely concealing her face, and drank her milk with little sighs of satisfaction. Frau Grinlich rang, and Tinker, the housemaid, came from the entry to take the child from her high chair and carry her upstairs into the playroom. You may be sorry, you may take her walking outside for a half hour, Tinker, said Tony, but no longer, and put her put on her thick jacket. It is very damp and foggy. She remained alone with her husband. You only make yourself seem absurd, she said then, after a silence, obviously continuing an interrupted conversation. What are your objections? Give me some reasons. I can't be always attending to the child. You are not fond of children, Antony. Fond of children, indeed. I have no time. I am taken up with the housekeeping. I wake up with twenty things that must be done. I go to bed with forty that have not been done. There are two servants, a young woman like you... Two servants. Good. Tinker has to wash up, to clean, to serve. The cook is busy all the time. You have chops early in the morning. Think it over, Grundlich. Sooner or later, Erica may must have a bon, a governess. But to get a governess for her so soon is not suited to our means. Our means? Goodness, you are absurd. We Are we beggars? Are we forced to live within the smallest limits we can? I think I brought you in 80,000 marks. Oh, you and your 80,000 marks. Yes, I know you like to make light of them. They were of no importance to you because you married me for love. Good, but do you still love me? You deliberately disregard my wishes. The child is not to have a governess, and I don't even speak any more of the coop, which we need quite as much as we need food and drink. And why do you insist on our living out here in the country if it, is, if it isn't in accordance with our means to keep a carriage so that we can go into society respectably? Why do you never like it when I go into town? You would always rather just have me bury myself out here so I should never see a living soul. I think you are very ill-tempered. Herr Grunlich poured some wine into his glass, lifted up one of the crystal bells and began on the cheese. He made no reply. Do you love me any more? repeated Tony. Your silence is so insulting it drives me to remind you of a certain day when you entered our landscape room. You made a fine figure of yourself, but from the very first day after our marriage you have sat with me only in the evening, and that only to read the paper. Just at first you showed some little regard for my wishes, but that's been over with for a long while now. You neglect me. And you? You are ruining me. I? I'm ruining you. Yes, you are ruining me with your indolence, your extravagance, and love of luxury. Oh, pray don't reproach me with my good upbringing. In my parents' house I never had to lift a finger. Now I have, to hard, now I have hard work to get accustomed to do housekeeping. But 
I have at least a right to demand that you do not refuse me the ordinary assistance. Father is a rich man. He would never dream that I could lack for service. Then wait for this third servant until we get hold of some of those riches. You are wishing for my father's death, but I mean that we are well-to-do people in our own right. I did not come to you with empty hands. Her Grunlich smiled an embarrassed and dejected smile, although he was in the act of chewing his breakfast. He made no other reply, and his silence bewildered Tony. Grunlich, she said more quietly, why do you smile and talk about our means? Am I mistaken? Has business been bad? Have you... Just then, somebody drummed on the corridor door, and her Kesselmeyer walked in. <clears throat> Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. It seems like it's taken a few years, but Tony is starting to realise that maybe her husband isn't quite as rich as he made out at the beginning. Alright guys, thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.